In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So today we reflect on one of the most powerful passages in the Gospel. The Fathers call this Gospel the fifth Gospel. Like it's a Gospel that stands alone. It's, it's the Gospel within the Gospels. So this is such a powerful passage. And for many of you, I know that this is probably your most favorite Sunday in the year. Again, next week we also read about the Samaritan woman, which is a beautiful passage as well. And it's nice to see how they both actually relate. They, they both have a common struggle. They share in this same struggle to break away from their past and to overcome their guilt and their shame and the temptation to just stay in that hopeless condition. Okay, so... I want to meditate on this theme of just how we can overcome the guilt and the shame from our failures. Because today we see a prodigal son, a wasteful son. We see a failure, right? Next week we'll see a similar story. Someone who's living in shame and guilt. Someone who has no loyalty to a single man. Someone who's living in so much shame that she can't even go in the appropriate time to fill her water. So, there's this beautiful connection between the two. And I know that we can relate to that. Okay? So, first, let's look at the, the journey of the prodigal son. Okay? Let's look at his whole walk back home. Okay? We know that he was at a far country. Right? So he was at a distance. So he had a long distance to travel back. And so we have that climactic moment when he came to himself. Right? But then what? He's walking back home. It probably didn't just take 5-10 minutes to get home. He was in a far country. So there's a journey that required hours, maybe days. And as he's walking, what's he thinking? What's on his mind? Is he stressed? Is he joyful? Is he worried? Is he anxious? Does he feel any sort of shame or guilt? Like, what's on his mind? And, and you know, there was a lot of time for him to think. Okay? I'm sure that he knew the law of Moses. I'm sure that he knew the consequences for what he did. And in Deuteronomy, we know that chapter 21 tells us the one who shames his father, the rebellious son should be stoned publicly in front of the whole village. You think he was aware of that? You think that troubled him a little? I bet. And so, yes, he knew that his father was a good man, but he also knew that he brought shame to his family. And so there was like a mountain of guilt and shame and anxiety that he had to carry as he's walking back home in this long journey. St. John Chrysostom says, Pay attention carefully. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Did you pay attention to what I said? Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. A lot of times when we're tempted 
to fall into sin, Satan gives us the boldness to go with it. Right? But after we fall into sin, instead of having the boldness to repent, now he tempts us with that sense of shame. So instead of having shame in the thought of sin, we should be ashamed of sinning, not ashamed of repenting. But this is what Satan does. He makes us ashamed to go back to our father with the filth that we created, the filth that we caused. And this was the battle and the struggle for the prodigal son. He was tempted with that shame and that guilt and that regret. And that temptation is the most challenging temptation. That's the temptation that causes despair and hopelessness. That's what separates us from God. And I'm telling you, we can all relate because we've all made mistakes, right? So the burden of our failures is the heaviest one to carry. It's one thing to tolerate the mess that the people around us caused. But when the mess in my life is the one that I caused, it's my fault, I did this to myself, well then now I'm responsible. Now I feel that the weight of guilt, the weight of that shame. Now I'm, I, I don't have to just deal with the problems that people are causing around me, but now I have to deal with myself. And sometimes that's unbearable. That's what makes us feel guilty and hopeless. I did this to myself. I'm the problem. Not the people around me. I am the problem. And I'm telling you, that's what the devil was whispering in his ear the whole way back home. You're the problem. Have you no shame? What do you mean go back home to your father? You threw away everything he gave you. You're hopeless. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with the temptation to succumb to that guilt and that shame and that despair? First, we have to actually own up to it. Okay? St. John says, if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. All of us have fallen into sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to actually own up to the sins we've committed. We have to admit it. We have to actually acknowledge it. A lot of times people tell you, you know, there's no reason for you to feel guilty. What you did wasn't that bad. You know, there's no reason to feel bad about what you did because it wasn't a big deal. So what we try to do is just belittle the problem that we created. We belittle the sins that we committed so that we don't have to feel bad, we don't have to feel guilty, we don't have to feel ashamed. And so that's the exact opposite of what the scriptures tell us. Instead of belittling our sins, we have to acknowledge them, we have to face them. There was a time when Abu Dioscorus was just sitting on a bench weeping. And one of the disciples that was walking by saw him weeping and he asks, Father, why are you weeping? He says, I'm weeping for my sins. He says, what do you mean? You're like the great Abba Dioscorus. You don't have any sins. This is how he responded. My child, if I were allowed to see my sins, three or four men would not be enough to weep for them. This is not a man who was just conscious of his sins but faced them, faced them with repentance and tears. And that's what we strive to do throughout this period of Lent in our whole life. 
we don't just face them, but we confront them with the hope of Christ. We confront them with the grace of God. And confronting those sins, admitting those sins, acknowledging those sins, doesn't mean we walk around with low self-esteem. Low self-esteem is not humility. As a matter of fact, low self-esteem is sinful. It's a product of my pride. Low self-esteem is sinful because we belittle the dignity that God gave us. I say I'm worthless. Like, how do you think a king feels when a prince tells him, I'm worthless? Like, what do you mean you're worthless? You're majestic, you're royal, you come from a royal family, you live in the palace. That's an insult to the king. Walking around with that low self-esteem is an insult to God. And it's also prideful because we determine our own value by our measurement. Who are you to determine what you're worth? It's not up to you. It's up to God and His estimation of our value. And He put a price on all of us. That price was His own precious blood. So when I walk around with this sense of worthlessness, and I determine that from my own estimation, then I am determining what I am worth. It's up to me. And it's totally arrogant. It's not up to me. It's not about me and what I think of myself. It's up to God and what He thinks of me. And C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. If we walk in humility, we don't just belittle ourselves. It doesn't mean we make ourselves less than we really are because we are royal. We come from the heaven of heavens. Our citizenship is in heaven. And so humility is to just have less preoccupation with ourselves. So we have to acknowledge that. Okay? And when we acknowledge that and we face that reality, we begin with a solid foundation of truth. St. Ida the Syrian says, Blessed is the person who knows his own sinfulness because this knowledge becomes for him the foundation and the beginning of all that is good and beautiful. When we acknowledge this, we establish a foundation of all that is good and beautiful. Now we can start. Now we can start. And that's precisely what the prodigal son did. He said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned. That's it. I sinned. That was the first thought on his mind. I'm going to own up to it. And that was the foundation of his repentance. Facing reality, facing truth. Not to run away from our failures, but to accept them. To accept that reality. Father Jacques Philippe says, A great deal of time can be wasted in the spiritual life complaining that we're not like this or not like that. Lamenting this defect or that limitation. Imagining all the good we could do if instead of being the way we were, we were less defective, more gifted with this or that quality or virtue and so on. Here is a waste of time and energy that merely impedes the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We must accept ourselves just as we are if the Holy Spirit is to change us for the better. We must accept ourselves just as we are. And that's what the prodigal son did today. 
I threw it away. I wasted his grace. But I'm not going to stop there. I have to admit it. I have to face the truth and come to terms with it. Yes, I did what I did. No need to hide. No need to pretend. Let's be real. That's what that phrase, he came to himself, actually means. He faced reality. He was real with himself. When we accept our failures and our mistakes, whether the mess that we caused is a product of our own work or not, there will always be a benefit to it. If there's a mess in your life, God can use it to sanctify you, whether you're the one who caused it or not. And this was very clear in one of my friendships. A friend of mine walked down a wrong path as he was a little younger and you know, he strayed away from the church, pretty much threw his life away. He ended up in prison. And during this time, while he was in prison, and yes, he definitely did this to himself, he was closer to God than ever before. And for three years, I would visit him on a monthly basis, and he would be aching for the time that I would come to prison to take his confessions and give him communion. Now, it's heartbreaking to actually think about what he lost after he got out of prison. Now that he's free, he got a little complacent. He got a little distant. And that zeal that he had when he was in handcuffs was better than the freedom the world gave him. And so even if the mess in your life is a product of your own work, God can use it. God can transform it. It doesn't matter. There's always hope. Henry Nowen says, The first response then to our brokenness is to face it squarely and befriend it. Face it squarely and befriend it. Okay? Now, it's hard to embrace our condition because of our pride. Because I expect more from myself. We presume that God's love is dependent on our righteousness. Right? Like the more I love God, the more He loves me. I come to church, I get more from God. I stray away, I get less. So as if His love is dependent on what I do. And so we refuse to accept our failures because we presume that we warrant less love from God in our times of failure. Like now that I'm slipping, I warranted less love from God. So as if God's love is dependent on what I do, right? And, and that's a very arrogant and a prideful thought. It's not up to me and what I do. I don't determine my own value and I don't dictate the capacity of God to love me. It's that simple. And this is why the prodigal son was able to return back home. He knew that. Father Jacques Philippe says, We find it so difficult to accept our own deficiencies because we imagine they make us unlovable. Since we're defective in this or that aspect, we feel that we don't deserve to be loved. But living under God's gaze makes us realize how mistaken that is. Love is given freely. It's not deserved. And our deficiencies don't prevent God from loving us. Just the opposite. Thus, 
we're freed from the terrible despair-inducing sense that we must become good enough to deserve to be loved. You don't have to earn anything in the spiritual life. And if you're too proud to take a handout, Christianity is not for you. Like in our culture, you know, a, a macho, older sort of man that doesn't like to take handouts. You know, I got to earn it. I got to work for it from my own sweat and blood. Like I have to earn everything in my life. And so you apply that to your Christian path. Good luck experiencing and enjoying the grace of the free gift of salvation. Because it's not by our own work. It's God's free gift of love. Salvation is a free gift of love to those who are unworthy. Me being the chief. St. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift. Take it or leave it. But it's free. You think you're going to have to earn it? Then it's not for you. And if you're too proud to take a free gift, you'll never enjoy salvation. And God will love you no matter what. So, we are lovable to God, despite our sinfulness. There's a story about what someone called the fourth temptation. The fourth temptation. The fourth temptation of Christ. We know the three temptations in the wilderness. We read that last week. But there's a fourth temptation that someone was meditating on. That was whenever Christ was on the cross. And his disciples deserted him except for St. John and Mary. No one followed him. People abused him. People are mocking him at the cross. People are gambling for his clothes. And at this time, when the people that he is saving are turning his back on him, the devil whispers in his ear and he tells him, they're not worthy. They don't deserve your love. And it's at that moment that Christ says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. They may not be worthy, but I love them anyways. And I'll forgive them anyways. So God's love is unconditional. St. John Climacus says, The mercy of God has no limits. Nothing is too great for it. This is the reason why anyone who despairs is the author of his own death. He says, The one who despairs commits suicide. Think about why Judas threw it all away. It's because he thought there was no hope for him. He put limits on God's mercy. He considered himself unlovable. And that despair consumed him. So we have to strike the balance. Okay? Recognizing our own sinfulness and recognizing God's love, His unconditional mercy. So we have to keep the reality of both attached and tied together. Pascal says, Knowing God without knowing our own wretchedness makes for pride. Knowing our own wretchedness without knowing God makes for despair. Knowing Jesus Christ strikes the balance because he shows us both God and our own wretchedness. 
You see? If all we look at is our sinfulness, we fall into despair. If all we see is God's love, well then I just live my life carelessly and well then I live autonomously and that's just nothing but pride. But in Christ, we see His mercy and we see our wretchedness, the sinfulness of humanity. So here is the balance. There's a Russian philosopher, Tatiana Gorichiva. She reflected on the time when one of her friends committed suicide at the age of 15. And a couple of decades later, she finally understood what actually happened, and she wrote this. Today, 20 years after her death, I can put it in Christian terms. So she's talking about this friend that committed suicide 20 years earlier. And she says that she discovered her sinfulness. She discovered a fundamental truth, namely that human beings are weak and incomplete. But she didn't find the other truth, which is still more important. That God can save human beings, lift them up out of their fallenness, and snatch them out of the most impenetrable darkness. No one had told her anything about this hope. So she died, forced under by despair. And that's what happens when all we see is our sinfulness. We see our sinfulness, but that's not all. We see our sinfulness in the light of God's love. And we'll never despair if we look at ourselves through God's loving eyes. Father Anthony Kinnier says, To know thyself alone may mean that you sink into despair, but to know thyself and find your true self in Christ is to find acceptance forgiveness, and power to rise above sin and despair to a new life, your true self, your best self. If we come to know ourselves in the light of God, we come to know our real identity. And in a sense, this journey for the prodigal son was a journey to discover his true self. It was a journey to come to himself. It was a journey to discover his identity. And the reason he left and wasted his life is because he didn't know his true self. The real failure of the prodigal son is that he didn't know himself in the light of his father's love. And that's why he threw it all away. That's why he wanted to leave. So he overlooked his identity as the son of a loving father. He didn't know himself. You remember there's the scene in the Disney movie Tarzan. And uh, it's whenever he finally meets Jane. Right? And he sees this weird figure. right? And he's inspecting her. Like he's pulling her hair. He's pulling her ears and her toes. And you know, like she even like, slaps him because he's like, looking at her skirt and stuff. Because he doesn't know. And the reason he's confused is not because... He has no idea who this person is, but he's confused because he has no idea who he is. He's never seen himself in the mirror. His whole life he just thought he was another ape, right? That's all he sees. So when he saw another human being, a real person, he's like, this is a strange creature. So he couldn't identify Jane as another person. He couldn't identify Jane as a real human being. And that's because he had no idea who he was. If he knew, 
he was a human being, a real person. Jane comes along, oh, that's just another person. And a lot of times, we're confused about life because we have no idea who we are. We don't understand our identity. And the prodigal son had no idea who he was the moment he decided to tell his dad, give me your goods, I'm out. Father Thomas Hopkins says, the tragic truth, however, is that countless people, especially in contemporary secularized societies, have become convinced that their sinful thoughts and feelings define who they are in their essential being and life. In the beginning, the prodigal son wanted to find his identity in possessions, in money. Right? He thought that money, his inheritance, would satisfy him. That would give him value. Like a lot of people identify as a successful entrepreneur, a successful businessman. That's your identity. A man of success, a man of money. What's in my bank account defines my worth and my value. And that's what he thought. So he said, give me money. And he thought that maybe a sense of autonomy would give him a sense of identity. And so he said, you know what? I'm going to go live on my own. So he thought that maybe I can make a name for myself. And don't you hear that around in our society? Be you. Be you. That's a bunch of crap. What do you mean be you? Be Christ. That's my identity. I don't want to be you. I want to be like Christ. If we want to live this autonomous, independent life, we reduce the grace that God gave us. God gave us a grace to be like God. That's why Christ became man. God became man that man may become God, not to just be a regular, ordinary person. So, he wanted to find his sense of identity in a life of autonomy. And where did that lead him? It was one empty road after another. And so maybe he thought, well, I just need some more friends. Maybe that will give me a real sense of identity. You know, and so your whole social group gives you a sense of identity. And I identify by the type of friends that I have. And they give me meaning. They give me a sense of value. And what happened to that thought? That got him nowhere. He said, okay, maybe friends didn't work. Maybe just some pleasures and lusts. And trust me, he was sleeping around. And the older son knew that. He says, as soon as this son of yours came back, who squandered your money with harlots. So he knew exactly what his little brother was doing. So all the pleasures and the lusts out there was empty. A lot of times we try to find meaning and value in our life by pleasures. And going from one lust to another. Satisfying our, our physical and sexual desires. And it's all empty. And finally, was the temptation to identify as a failure. And this was the biggest mountain to climb. So he overcame the temptation to identify as an autonomous, independent figure. 
He overcame the temptation to identify with his possessions. He overcame the temptation to identify with his friends. He overcame the temptation to identify with all the lusts and the pleasures. But now, you're nothing but a failure. You did this to yourself. You caused this mess. You are the problem. And I'm telling you, we've all heard that thought before. And that's whenever he decided to recognize his identity in the light of his father's eyes. That's why he recognized that he is still a son. He said when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's servants have enough bread to eat and to spare? I will arise and go to where? To my father. And if you continue to read that passage, the word father and my father and son keep repeating. There's an emphasis on the fact that he is still a son no matter what. And he is still his father no matter what. It doesn't matter that I wasted it all. I'm no less a son. If a prince leaves the palace, he throws away his money. His royal garment gets dirty and muddy. People spit at him. Let's say he wastes every possible possession out on the streets. Is he any less of of a prince? He could always go right back to the palace. And people know that he's still a prince. We can stray from God, but we will never lose our identity as the image of God. When, When he came home, he knew his identity as a sinner, but as a son of a loving father. That he recognized that his father's love is unconditional. So these are the two realities, the permanent realities that he recognized. That his father's love is unconditional and he will always remain a son, no matter what. That's why we call this parable the the parable of the prodigal son, not the parable of the prodigal boy. We reckon he's a son. He's a son of a loving father. So I want to just share with you a quick little story from a book just to conclude. So Edith Roos shares a dream that she had. So she says, I dreamed that I died and I went to heaven. A scholarly old gentleman sat on the pearly gates. He was hunched on a stool in front of a huge ledger. When I knocked, He squinted over his glasses and gave me a warm smile. May I have your name and qualification for entry, he asked kindly. Sure, I replied with confidence. I'm Eddie Roos, a member of the church. I taught adult classes in our congregation, made quilts for world relief, led a Bible study. The old gentleman leafed through his ledger and shook his head. I don't see you on the entrance list. Maybe you go by another name? Well... I also was known as wife. I washed my husband's clothes, laughed at his jokes, loved and honored him. That's a good one too because she actually laughed at his jokes. So I could definitely take pride in that. (laughs) No, no, that's not in here. What's your name? Who are you? He glanced at his watch impatiently. I thought desperately. I was known to a couple of boys as mommy. I made hundreds of peanut butter and honey sandwiches played Monopoly by the hour, taught bedtime prayers. No, look, who are you? Please hurry, I have a party to go to and I don't want to be late. 
I, uh, I don't know. How about Edith Arus, writer? I did devotional articles for church magazines. I'm sorry, he said shortly. I guess you just don't belong. He slid off his chair and turned away. I trembled. I had never anticipated the possibility of being excluded from heaven. Who was I outside of churchgoer, wife, mother, writer? What were my qualifications for entering an eternity of bliss with God? I tried to remember what I had learned in all of those years of religious training. The old man kept walking away. Then I remembered, wait, wait, I shouted at the receding figure. I have a reservation here. The old man turned interested and she quoted John 14:22. I go to prepare a place for you. How thankful I was that church school teacher who long ago made me memorize that verse. The old man was still hesitant. Who are you? He demanded. I was confident now, confident and yet strangely humbled. God is my father. I replied quietly. I have no qualifications except that he has adopted me. His daughter. His daughter? The old man clapped his hands in enthusiastic welcome. Come in, come in. The party I mentioned is in your honor. He swung the pearly gates open and I entered into paradise. I hope you remember this reality, the identity of our sonship, that we belong to God no matter what, that even if we stray, even if we cause the biggest mess in the world in our life, there's always hope. And to God is due all glory forever. Amen.